0: From PRX, this is Living
1: on Earth. I'm Bobby Bascom, and I'm Jenny Doring. The world's oceans are warming at an alarming rate.
2: 2022 was the warmest year on record for the global oceans. 2021 was the warmest year before that. Now, this is not just looking at the surface, but the top 2,000 meters of the ocean. And so the oceans are certainly warming, and that shows. Better than anything else, actually, the global warming signature.
0: Also, due to our geography, the United States is particularly at risk of extreme weather events.
3: It's almost like there's two weather patterns one country. The West is dry and getting drier, and the East is wet and getting wetter. So all of those sort of combine in different ways to cause various weather extremes.
0: That and more this week
1: on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRX and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jenny Doring. And I'm Bobby Bascom.
0: The world's oceans store nearly 90% of the excess heat produced from anthropogenic climate change, and they're warming at an alarming rate. According to NOAA data, the average sea surface temperature hit an all time high last month. In just five years, the global ocean heat content has increased by 0.07 degrees Fahrenheit. Now that may not sound like much, but it's roughly 30 to 40 zetajoules of heat, or equivalent to hundreds of millions of atomic bombs like the one that destroyed Hiroshima. And now, amid rising ocean temperatures, the Pacific Ocean is also moving away from a La Niña weather event and towards El Niño, which will cause sea surface temperatures to be warmer still. For more, I'm joined now by Kevin Trenberth, a distinguished scholar at the National Center of Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado. Welcome back to Living on Earth.
2: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: So NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, recently informed us that we seem to be heading out of a La Niña weather event and moving towards El Niño. What exactly does that transition likely look like? You know, what can we expect to see in the next year or so?
2: The last three years, we've been in this thing called the La Niña, which means it's quite cold along the tropical Pacific from the Dateline to the Americas, over an extensive region. It's a region larger than the area of the United States. And so this has kept sea surface temperatures at relatively low levels, but that has changed uh, this year. And so there is evidence that an El Nino could well be beginning, and there's certainly a coastal El Nino along the coast of South America that's occurring already. And so temperatures have risen quite sharply there, and that has local effects, changing the rainfall and the weather patterns in that region and changing the fisheries. And the Anticipation is at the moment that this is likely to become more widespread, so it becomes a basin-wide El Nino event later this year. Following an El Nino event, there's more heat that comes out of the ocean into the atmosphere, and that warms the atmosphere. And so the prospects are that certainly 2023 will be a bit warmer than it has been because of the cold sea temperatures in the tropical Pacific in the past three years, But 2024 could well break a new record and create the highest global mean surface temperature year on record. That's the expectation at the moment.
0: And how does climate change affect what you might expect to see from a typical El Nino or La Nina pattern? You know, it's supercharged so many things in our weather. What do you expect to see in terms of how climate change will impact these weather systems?
2: Climate change, the increasing heating from increasing carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, most of that heat ends up in the ocean. And so the oceans are expanding. The sea level is higher. The sea temperatures, as a result, are potentially higher unless something like a La Nina suppresses that. And now that the La Nina is over with, all of that warmth is coming. So what we're really seeing in some ways is an El Nino supercharged by global warming. Now, what that does in the atmosphere is it creates more evaporation into the atmosphere that warms and moistens the atmosphere. It invigorates all of the storms, especially in the Pacific region, all of the typhoons and tropical cyclones. And the sort of things actually we've seen recently in California with these Atmospheric rivers coming into California causing tremendous amounts of rainfall and then the potential for flooding. And so this is one of the prospects is that we have more active weather events, but they occur in different places than they have done over the last two or three years.
0: Scientists have also told us that they're recording an abnormal acceleration of ocean temperatures, you know, warming much more than they might expect. How does that compare to what you would normally expect in an El Nino event, you know, when the weather is shifting? And how much of that is due, you know, simply to climate change?
2: So we've written annual papers, my colleagues and and I, over the last several years. And in January, we published the assessment for 2022, And 2022 was the warmest year on record for the global oceans. 2021 was the warmest year before that. Now, this is looking at ocean heat content. It's not just looking at the surface, but the top 2,000 meters of the ocean. And we have pretty good measurements of that now. And so the oceans are certainly warming. And that shows, better than anything else, actually, the global warming signature. Now, we've got these conditions with the change in the La Nina to El Nino in the tropical Pacific. And so all of this is coming out now at the surface. And so the sea surface temperatures are now the highest on record. March is when the sea temperatures are normally highest. And that's because that's the equinox in the Southern Hemisphere and the small ocean in the Southern Hemisphere. And so the Southern Hemisphere controls the overall ocean temperatures in that sense. And what we've seen just in the last month or so is extraordinary. We've never seen sea surface temperatures this high before and certainly going in a rather different direction than all previous years. So normally the global sea surface temperatures are beginning to cool off at this time, and it hasn't happened so much this year. So this is indeed an indication that, you know, global warming is rearing its head and manifesting itself in part as this El Nino event.
0: And what about ocean currents, you know, things like the Gulf Stream? How might those systems might be affected by increased
2: ocean temperatures? Yeah, so that's a very good question, and it's a little hard to tell. The Gulf Stream is a part of a larger, what we refer to as Atlantic meridional overturning circulation. So this actually goes all the way from the southern hemisphere right up into the northern parts of the Atlantic, and it is very much affected by the amount of heat that comes into and out of the oceans. And so the the prospects there are indeed that there can be changes in the Gulf Stream, and this has consequences for uh, further up in the North Atlantic. In general, it's expected that the North Atlantic might not warm quite as much as some other regions, partly because of changes in the Gulf Stream and this Atlantic meridional overturning circulation, but it still warms. And so it's a little hard to know overall exactly how this is going to play out.
0: Well, maybe this is an unanswerable question, but is there, you know, a limited capacity to how much the oceans can do in terms of storing excess heat and carbon?
2: The oceans are quite cold at the bottom of the oceans, and there is a strong gradient in temperature called the thermocline as we go to the top part of the ocean. So the top of the ocean is much warmer than the oceans in general. And if we put more heat in, then that increases the stratification in the ocean. And this does tend to slow down the exchanges of heat and gases, oxygen and carbon dioxide into the ocean. And so it does slow down the uptake of of heat and carbon dioxide. But nonetheless, the warmer top part of the ocean means it's more out of equilibrium with the bottom part of the ocean. And so the ocean, even if we stop global warming altogether, so-called net zero, the oceans keep warming for decades and even centuries into the future. And so sea level rise goes along with that, continues. So even if we begin to stop global warming from the standpoint of the heating, the imbalance in the oceans means that they are still slowly responding, but the response does get slowed down by the fact that the oceans become more stable. So I don't know that we have passed a particular threshold at the moment, but You know, what can indeed happen is the sort of thing we were talking about a couple of minutes ago with a change in the track of the Gulf Stream, for instance. And so big changes like that may not be easily reversible. Other changes like melting of Greenland, if we melt Greenland, you can't put that water back in the form of a great big ice block again readily. And so those changes are irreversible and those are the sorts of things that mean that the future climate is simply going to be different than it has been in the past.
0: To what degree are you hopeful or optimistic that we can get a handle on this, you know, massive problem that we've put ourselves into?
2: Well, I have moved to New Zealand. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's that's one of the factors, actually, although New Zealand has got, uh, you know, a lot of coastal problems and erosion but is less likely to be affected by the global climate change than a number of other areas. And so the droughts and the floods in various places and the need to actually plan for those and build resilience where we can, and not enough of that is happening in the United States or in other places around the world. And so, you know, we could do a lot better.
0: Kevin Trenberth is a distinguished scholar at the National Center of Atmospheric Research. Kevin, thank you so much for your time today.
2: Oh, you're most welcome.
1: Coming up, we'll stay with weather and climate to take a look at how the United States is particularly vulnerable to severe weather events and the impacts of climate change. That's just ahead on Living on Earth.
4: Support for this podcast comes in part from Oregon State University, a proud sponsor of Living on Earth. Ranked as the number three best university in the country for solving the problems of climate change, Oregon State makes seeking solutions a priority, going the farthest links to help the earth and all living things thrive. Their creative minds, research knowledge, and drive inspire them to generate ideas no one else has. Oregon State will never stop doing the hard work, they will continue exploring, creating and taking action on the issues that matter most to their students and community, and build a better world for future generations. Discover more at oregonstate.edu. That's oregonstate.edu.
5: Support from our listeners is key to helping us continue providing detailed environmental news and analysis. Go to loe.org and click donate to learn more.
6: We'd like to tell you about one of our sponsors, Hold On Bags. Plastic. It's everywhere we look and not enough is being done about it. 100 billion plastic bags are used and then thrown away every year. That plastic bag you see in the gutter, or floating in a stream, or washed up on the beach? Multiply that by 100 billion. Yikes, right? But there's a better way, and it can start with a better bag. Hold on trash and kitchen bags are heavy-duty, plant-based, non-toxic, and 100% home-compostable which means they break down in weeks, not decades, without filling up our landfills or polluting our oceans. To shop plant-based bags and replace single-use plastics all over your home, visit holdonbags.com earth or enter earth at checkout to save 20% on your order. Sustainability has never been more simple. That's h-o-l-d-o-n bags earth or enter earth to receive 20% off your order. Small things can lead to lasting change if we stop and say, Hold on.
1: It's Living on Earth. I'm Bobby Bascom. And I'm Jenny Doring. As we talked about before the break, a shift towards an El Nino weather pattern and record high ocean temperatures are troubling developments for much of the world, especially the United States. Thanks to our unique geography, the U.S. is particularly vulnerable to nearly every kind of natural disaster. We have more tornadoes each year than any other country in the world. We're also prone to hurricanes, wildfires, and blizzards. These natural disasters are getting an unnatural boost with climate change, and the U.S. can expect to be ground zero for more destruction in the coming decades. For details, we called up Seth Bornstein. He's a science writer with the Climate and Environment team at the Associated Press. He spoke with Living on Earth's Ainsley O'Neill. So
5: what geographical features make the United States so uniquely susceptible to extreme weather?
3: Well, you've got two oceans, the Atlantic and the Pacific, and then you have the Gulf of Mexico, which is a third coast. And then you have the Rocky Mountains right through the middle of the United States going north-south. The United States is also in the mid-latitudes, where you get the difference between the cold and the polar regions and the hot in the tropics. And then you also have the jet stream, which comes whizzing through. And it's along that jet stream that's the instability. On one side of the jet stream, you have cold, and on the other side, you have hot. I mean, you just look at the United States, it's almost like there's two weather patterns, one country. West is dry and getting drier, and the East is wet and getting wetter. So all of those sort of combine in different ways to cause. Various weather extremes. I mean, tornadoes, hurricanes, wildfires, blizzards. You get nearly every possible one in the United States. And in many of them, like tornadoes, you get it far more than anywhere else.
5: So lots of other countries will certainly have coastlines and huge mountain ranges. You know, the Himalayas or the Andes and well, places like Australia, they're just completely surrounded by water. So how do the weather hazards of these other countries compare to those of the United States?
3: Well, Australia does have some of those issues, but if you think about it, much of these changes also brew in in the center. If you have hazards in the Australian outback, it doesn't affect many people because there are a few people. The other thing is the you know, Australia it's not quite in the same place where you have sort of the jet stream lunging through. China is another good one I kept asking when I talked to scientists in terms of comparisons. But what China has is just the one major coast. And it doesn't get the mixing or clashing of air that the U.S. gets. I mean, it's not to say that there aren't natural hazards anywhere else. It's just we get a wide variety.
5: Well, geography handed us a combination of dangerous ingredients, but... Our choices are also playing a role here. How are we exacerbating the situation? The
3: key here is these are not disasters in themselves. Meteorologists and disaster experts emphasize that all these weather extremes are hazards, but they're not disasters. What makes them disasters is the human factor. If you have a tornado ripping through the Kansas wheat fields, and there's no one there and no buildings it's not really a big deal it's not a disaster it is just nature but it's when there's people and buildings in the way that it becomes a disaster um we are putting people in places that are a little more dangerous think of all the construction along the US eastern and, and gulf coasts which are hurricane prone people build on areas where they have had total losses, and then they get hurricane insurance, federally funded usually, and then they build again in the same place. And some of the scientists said, you know, we don't do building codes as well as we should. For example, in in hurricane areas, you can buy hurricane clips, which are like $20 or so, 10 to $20. These are these metal clips you put on your roof beams to help attach and keep your roof during a hurricane. And many places don't require that. It's such a cheap thing. In Tornado Alley, some places cannot build basements, but basements are crucial, or some kind of tornado shelter. A little bit under 50% of deaths they find in tornadoes are in mobile homes or manufactured houses. Mm. If you are going to have mobile homes, maybe mobile home parks should all come with tornado shelters for people to go to. I mean, nature has dealt us a really lousy hand in terms of geography, but then we have made it so much worse.
5: Well, the science tells us that climate change will be making storms worse. They'll be making them more common, more intense. But how exactly will they start changing in the case of something like a tornado or a hurricane? So first,
3: tornadoes, it's more of an issue of movement. So in the Great Plains, sort of considered Tornado Alley, computer models show tornadoes decreasing in frequency there, but dramatically increasing eastward, like Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, Kentucky. And scientists have seen these trends starting to happen already. And eastward means more people, more poverty, more density, more trees, so you don't see the tornadoes coming. Like in Kansas or Oklahoma, you see them coming from miles away on the along the prairie. You know, if it's coming through Little Rock, there are trees in the way. You don't see a storm. And the scientists have found when there's tornado warnings, one of the first things people do is they go outside to take a look to see, oh, is it dangerous looking? And then, the, and then if it looks dangerous, then they will go in the basement and take shelter. So, if you can't see it because of trees and buildings, or if it's nighttime and in the mid-south we're getting more tornadoes later at night, it's more dangerous. Then, with hurricanes, most scientists are now saying more of the stronger hurricanes and definitely wetter hurricanes. So, you know, wetter, slower makes them more damaging. So, is Not quite as easy as things being worse. It's just how they're getting worse.
5: Mm. Sometimes it feels like those of us who live in the United States are experiencing these extreme weather events, if you'll allow me to use hyperbole, every five minutes. Mm. What kind of toll do you think that has on the American people or the American psyche?
3: I think there's all sorts of possible tolls. For a while, you would say, oh, my God, this is happening every five minutes. And then after a while, oh, it's just another tornado killing just another 10, 15 people. There's a history in the U.S. public of, of being shocked at stuff that happens and then accepting lots of deaths as normal, school shootings, COVID, you know, it's it's shocking, it's shocking, and then suddenly it's part of our daily lives. And in many ways, you know, if you think about it, whether disasters have become like that.
5: Well, what kind of progress, if any, have we made in preparing for these disasters?
3: There are still some, some good news. For example, lightning deaths the last few years have been at record lows. It's you know, 10, 12 deaths a year. And in the 50s and 40s, there were hundreds of deaths a year. And that's because of warning and education. And you know, everyone now knows if there's uh, lightning, get off the golf course, get out of the water.
7: Mm-hmm.
3: One, people weren't educated in that before. And two, the warnings are so much better. So we're getting so much better about weather forecasts and warnings. The trouble is there's a disconnect between the warnings out there and how people receive it and what they do. And also, you know, at some point there's some, only so much you can do.
1: Seth Bornstein is a science writer with the Climate and Environment Team at the Associated Press. He spoke with Living on Earth's Ainsley O'Neill. Just 5% of plastic waste is recycled in the U.S. each year. Of the other 95%, some winds up as pollution in the ocean, most is buried in landfills, and roughly 10% is burned, generating harmful air pollutants like dioxins and ash containing heavy metals. But waste incineration facilities don't actually have to report the toxic chemicals they're emitting from burning plastic waste. Advocates with Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility, or PEER, and Energy Justice Network are petitioning the Environmental Protection Agency to change that. Timothy Whitehouse is the Executive Director of PEER, and he joins me now. Welcome to Living on Earth.
8: Thank you. It's good to be here.
1: So I was frankly kind of shocked, honestly, to learn that incinerators aren't actually required to report their toxic chemical emissions. Why is that?
8: That's a great question. No one's quite sure why they got exempted, probably political power. But we do know that incinerators uh, release some of the most toxic pollutants known to mankind and are often some of the most egregious polluters in the states and counties where they're located.
1: So when we're talking about waste incineration, what types of waste are being incinerated?
8: So there are different kinds of incinerators. The most common that people are familiar with are municipal waste combustors or trash incinerators. So there are about 68 of these in the United States. They combust things that you throw in your garbage. It can be food waste, it can be paper, it can be couches, carpets, plastics, light bulbs, ink. There are also hospital and medical and infectious waste incinerators, There are also sewage sludge incinerators that incinerate sewage sludge from our waste treatment plants. And there are a type of incinerators called pyrolysis, and those are incinerators that take plastics and convert them into different chemicals and gases.
1: So what kinds of toxic chemicals can be released from burning those kinds of things?
8: Yes, so it's well known that incinerators release cancer-causing chemicals They release chemicals that induce asthma. They release chemicals that weaken our immune systems. These have been well-documented by studies throughout the United States and the world. Some of the more common chemicals that people know of are lead or mercury. There's also a toxic class of chemicals that people are becoming familiar with called PFAS, and those are a class of chemicals that number in the thousands, And EPA requires 180 of these different PFAS to be reported as part of a toxic release inventory. There are dioxins, which are cancer causing pollutants that are released when things are incinerated. And we know that municipal waste incinerators, the really big ones and the bad ones and the ones that produce the most toxic chemicals are located in low income and communities of color throughout the United States.
1: So your petition to the EPA, along with the Energy Justice Network, is attempting to require these types of emissions from waste incineration to be reported to the TRI, the Toxic Release Inventory. What do you hope that that would achieve?
8: There's a couple things that we hope that would achieve. The basic purpose of TRI is to allow local, state, and federal governments and emergency responders to know what chemicals are being stored and released into the water, air, and surrounding environments in their communities. And this allows the better management of these wastes, and this allows for an accurate comparison of how dangerous different facilities are and whether greater regulations are needed of these facilities. If you don't know what these facilities are releasing, it's very hard to develop good regulations to address those releases. The bottom line is if an industry is releasing toxic materials covered by the toxic release inventory, they should be required to report to the toxic release inventory, no exceptions. Toxic chemicals affect the public the same way whether it's coming from an oil and gas facility or an incinerator or a plastics-to-energy plant. From a human health perspective, from an environmental perspective, the source of the pollution doesn't matter. So the issue should be very clear and very simple. Incinerators are a major source of toxic air pollution, but they don't need to report to the TRI.
1: So, Tim, I can't help but think that, you know, EPA has been around for over 50 years and these facilities have been around for many decades as well. Have there been other attempts to, you know, get these chemicals to be reported? And if so, like why are you having to bring this action now?
8: So incinerators are required to report different releases of chemicals into various government databases, but they're not as extensive as the TRI and they're almost inaccessible to the public. The great thing about the TRI is if you have basic computer skills, you can understand what is being released into your environment from local facilities that are required to report to the TRI. It is one of the great triumphs of EPA's transparency work, and incinerators have managed to stay out of that system, and it's very unfortunate.
1: So it sounds like it's as much about public awareness as anything else here.
8: It's about public awareness. Also, the other thing I want to point out is A lot of these incinerators produce energy. So they either produce energy in the form of electricity, or increasingly, they're creating energy in the form of creating new fuels. And so this industry is claiming it's clean and green, and it's asking for federal subsidies, and it's asking for state subsidies as a clean energy source. But at the same time, they're refusing to report their toxic release emissions to the TRI.
1: Now, it sounds like you're referring to facilities involved in so-called advanced recycling or chemical recycling of plastics um, when you talk about these facilities that produce fuel. Is that correct?
8: Yes, correct. That's called pyrolysis.
1: Yes. So these are currently considered incineration facilities by the EPA. But I understand that the Trump administration proposed a rule that would actually deregulate these facilities by moving them out of this incineration category. And right now, the Biden administration is reconsidering those rules, and they're kind of stuck in this evaluation stage. What are you hearing from within the EPA about these proposed rules?
8: So unfortunately, it appears that this EPA is considering the Trump-era proposed rules to remove these plants from Section 129 of the Clean Air Act. And if they are able to remove these types of plants from the Clean Air Act from Section 129, there'll be virtually no air regulations over these types of facilities. We know that these types of facilities release some of the most toxic pollutants into the environment known to humankind. They are considering this proposal quite seriously, I believe, because there is this huge push for what's called advanced recycling, which, in my mind, is locking us into a toxic carbon-based lifestyle that will wreck the climate and poison us and the wildlife around us.
1: Now, from what I've been able to see, this rule, it's murky, right? It's hard to see what's actually going on within EPA because they opened up a public comment period in late 2021. And from what I've seen, they haven't released anything else publicly beyond that. But what are you hearing about where EPA might go with this at this point?
8: It's hard to know where EPA wants to go with this, But we do know from their approval of some of the chemicals that are being produced by these plants that the direction is very troubling. For example, EPA recently approved a chemical produced from one of these plants that has a risk of one in four people being exposed to this chemical could get cancer over their lifetime. And that's an EPA assessment. That is 250,000 times greater than what EPA would normally approve. And so EPA is cutting corners to accommodate the oil and gas and chemical industry that is behind this effort, and they're doing it largely in secret. So most of the work the EPA is doing in approving these chemicals is done behind closed doors and done under the guise of confidential business information. So we are very concerned about how EPA will approach the management and regulation of these plants that basically heat and burn plastic, incinerate plastics to create new fuels.
1: Tim Whitehouse is the Executive Director of Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility, or PEER. Thank you so much, Tim. Thank you. We reached out to EPA about its consideration of the Trump-era proposal to deregulate so-called chemical recycling plants. A spokesperson wrote, EPA is currently reviewing the comments and input from stakeholders on the advanced notice of proposed rulemaking. A full statement is on the Living on Earth website, LOE.org.
0: coming up, no mow May and the push to let lawns grow this spring to support emerging insects. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org.
1: It's Living on Earth. I'm Bobby Bascom, and I'm Jenny Doring. Time now for a look beyond the headlines with Peter Dykstra. He's our Living on Earth contributor, and he joins us from Atlanta, Georgia.
7: Hey, Peter, how you doing this week? I'm doing all right, Jenny. I hope you're doing well. And there's some good news on the horizon for any of us who, like me, get to listen to and inhale all of those two-stroke engine leaf blowers, lawn mowers, edgers, all the lawn equipment that's in use by um, commercial firms and homeowners that are both a climate change threat. And a threat, if they're used without protection, to the lungs and ears of hundreds of thousands of people. But there are several jurisdictions that have now stepped forward or are stepping forward to begin to ban or restrict these noisy, polluting, unhealthful machines.
1: Oh, wow. That's probably good for our health and our sanity. So what are the places banning these things, Peter?
7: Places like Washington, D.C. have had an outright ban, the $500 fine for using any of these gasoline engines. California has restrictions rolling in in the next few years. Burlington, Vermont, Vancouver, British Columbia, Denver, and other cities and jurisdictions are coming to realize that the cost of a well-manicured lawn shouldn't be potential pollution, lung disease, asthma, and all of the things that gasoline engines from lawn equipment can bring. And by
1: the way, elsewhere in the broadcast, we've got a segment about no mow may, if you want to skip the mowing entirely.
7: No mow may, and then there are other things like uh, xeriscaping, the practice of landscaping without ornamental grass and using as little water as possible.
1: Mm, All great ideas. What else do you have for us this week, Peter?
7: California developed emissions rules for locomotives, those diesel locomotives that are particularly intensively used in California, ports like Long Beach that receive container ships from Asia and really all over the world to bring goods to America that are then loaded onto either trains powered by diesel locomotives or trucks powered by diesel engines. It's not only a climate issue and a public health issue, but it's considered to be an environmental justice issue since places like Long Beach tend to have poor and minority neighborhoods backed up to big cargo ports and terminals.
1: Mm, So it's good news for those communities. But what is the industry saying, Peter?
7: The industry is not too happy. They've seen this coming for a while. They are, of course, slow to respond, but electric vehicles have pretty much arrived, electric trains have been around for a long time. It's a little bit more complicated to get freight trains operating on electricity, but it's something that can be done. And increasingly, we're learning that for health and climate reasons, it eventually has to be done.
1: Wonderful. So from looking ahead to the future, let's look back into the past now, Peter. What do you got for us?
7: On May 12th, 1982, something really strange happened. According to crew diaries from the Royal British Navy, who in 1982 was at war with Argentina for control of the Falkland Islands, the HMS Brilliant British Navy ship torpedoed at least two southern right whales, thinking they were Argentine mini-subs. There's a helicopter that may have killed a third whale, We don't know about others, but it was a really bizarre and unfortunate case of southern right whales becoming casualties of war.
1: I imagine it must have been pretty gruesome for these crews to discover that they had not, in fact, targeted a submarine, but a majestic whale.
7: Gruesome enough that it wasn't talked about for many years until these crew diaries were revealed. Southern right whales are considered to be a separate species from northern right whales, the southern whales, are still endangered, but not nearly as gravely threatened as the northern right whales.
1: Well, thank you so much, Peter. Peter Dykstra is a weekly Living on Earth contributor, and we'll talk to you again next week.
7: All right, Jenny, thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon.
1: And there's more on these stories on the Living on Earth website. That's L-O-E dot <laughs>
0: Spring is in full swing across the north, and some may feel the urge to get out the lawnmower and tidy up. But there's a growing push towards letting our lawns grow for the month of May. The No-Mow May movement aims to give insects just emerging from hibernation access to critical sources of food, like dandelions and violets, before we mow them down with the grass. Insect populations, including many critical bee and other pollinator species, are in dramatic decline threatening food webs in nature and food security for humans. But communities that let the grass grow this month have seen a tremendous increase in pollinators, a five-fold increase in pollinator abundance, and a three-fold increase in the diversity of insects. Israel del Toro is a biology professor at Lawrence University in Appleton, Wisconsin, one of the communities that has embraced Nomo May.
4: The idea is pretty simple. May is actually a really important time for our pollinators that are just coming out of hibernation. So many of the species of bees that we have in the U.S. are solitary bees that overwinter underground. And so the idea behind No Mow May is to basically let our lawns grow out and provide some early season flowers for our pollinators that are coming out of hibernation to feed on.
0: Well, this time of year in my own yard, I'm seeing um, dandelions and some violets coming out. But what kind of flowers are we talking about here? I'm sure, of course, it's going to vary across the country. But generally, what are you seeing?
4: Yeah, things that we would normally consider weedy species are actually really important food sources for our pollinators. So things like what you just mentioned, dandelions, clovers, violets, all of those are resources, whether native or not, that our native bees are actually depending on. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm all about removing invasives and reducing invasive species as well, but we also want to make sure that we strike a balance in working with the biodiversity in our backyards.
0: Well, tell me more about the insects and and pollinators specifically that we're talking about here.
4: Yep. So pollinator diversity is actually really huge. If we look at the entire U.S. as a whole, we're looking at about four to five thousand different species of native bees. Most of them are solitary bees and actually very few are colonial like honeybees or semi-colonial like bumblebees. The rest of them tend to be solitary. They nest underground, they nest in decaying wood. Some of them line their, their burrows with leaves. Those are your leafcutter bees, or others will dig out little burrows inside of walls, and those might be your mason bees. And so we have quite a big diversity of bees. Here in Wisconsin, we have about 500 different species of bees that are native to Wisconsin. And amongst that biodiversity, we also have rare and endangered species. So a good example of that is the rusty patch bumblebee. The rusty patch bumblebee is federally listed as a critically endangered species due primarily to habitat loss. But one of the cool things that we're seeing is that these urban habitats that we're generating as a result of Nomo May can actually result in bringing back some of those populations into urban spaces.
0: So even somebody that maybe doesn't care so much about bees or insects, but might like to hang that bird feeder outside their window and, and see birds, maybe they should think about taking up this no moment. I mean, insects are so foundational to many species that that we care about.
4: Absolutely. So with insects being at the base of many of these food webs, birds and other small mammals rely on them as a part of their diet. So by increasing the abundance of insects in general, we can really start to help the broader ecosystem as well. One of the other cool things that we see as part of nomo May. so let's say animals and insects and birds aren't your thing, but maybe plants are your thing, Nomu May also gives an opportunity for rare and endangered species of plants to pop up, things that might not normally show up.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. So it sounds like May specifically is a really critical window for a lot of things.
4: Yep. May is when nature is waking up from winter, right? Now, depending on where you are in the U.S., no-mow may might not be the right time for you to not mow your lawn. It might be no-mow April if you're further south, or no-mow March, just depending on where you are and wherever the seasonality is appropriate.
0: Well, how big is the potential impact of yards um, for pollinators and, and for wildlife in general? I mean, we grow a lot of grass in this country.
4: That's right. So grasses are probably are predominantly most homogeneous crop that we grow as a country. We manage it so heavily, right? We put all of these chemicals, fertilizers, herbicides, pesticides in it to have that greenest lawn. And maybe this is an opportunity for us to rethink some of those habits and educate ourselves on what the best practices are and maybe reducing our fertilizer use or reducing harmful chemicals that are known carcinogens. For example glyphosates and neonicotinoids are really bad for our pollinator populations, but they're also really bad for us humans. The European Union, for example, has declared glyphosates as known carcinogens, and we still keep putting them on our lawns and often overusing these chemicals. So this is an opportunity for us to think about what's good for the environment, but also what's good for our own health and our practices on how we manage our little bits of plots of land.
0: So we've been talking about holding back on mowing our lawns. What about cleaning up, you know, last year's leaves or pulling out those dead flower stalks? I understand a lot of insects make their winter homes in, in places like that.
4: Absolutely. So no mow may isn't just an opportunity to be lazy. In fact, I encourage you to do the opposite. I encourage you to spend that time that you would normally spend mowing, educating yourself about other things that you can be doing for our pollinators throughout the summer and into the fall. And as you mentioned, uh, going into the fall... Is a really important time of where we can help create habitat, nesting habitat for these solitary bees. We like the idea of leaving the leaves. The other great thing about leaving the leaves is that it becomes great compost for your yard and for your lawn in the next year. So not only are you protecting your pollinators, but you're fertilizing your landscape as well along the way.
0: Well, Israel, I have to tell you that this has become a bit of an issue in my own house here. My husband mows the lawn, and he's already talking about how long the grass is getting. I kind of think he's worried that the neighbors are going to judge us for not keeping our yard neat enough. How do you respond to someone with those kind of concerns?
4: Yeah. So the big thing is uh, open communication and talking to your neighbors about what you're doing and why you're doing it. So if you decide to grow out your lawn for the month of May, the first thing we ask you to do is check with your local municipality to make sure that you're not violating some city ordinance. However, uh, if your town is participating or you are within your city ordinances, then, you know, by all means, just talk to your neighbors, let them know that, yeah, my lawn's going to be a little shaggy this month, but that's okay. This is why I'm doing it. And I promise come June, I'm going to mow that thing and we're all going to be Look in top shape. And you know, one of the things that we do is we provide signage for our communities to let people know that our wild looking lawns actually is a sense of organized chaos, that there is method to our madness, right? That we're not just being lazy gardeners, we're actually thinking about providing homes for our pollinators.
0: So, no moment isn't a, a slippery slope to bedlam, then <laughs> it's going to be okay.
4: <laughs> no, I, I think no moment is more of a slippery slope into learning about your biodiversity and educating yourself and your family about the little things that crawl outside our house that are really important for our ecosystem.
0: Israel del Toro is a biology professor at Lawrence
1: University in Appleton, Wisconsin. Letting your lawn go a little wild this May can help emerging insects and a cascade of other animals that eat insects, including many bird species. And that's crucial right now, as North American birds have declined roughly 30% since 1970, mostly due to habitat loss, invasive species, and predation from cats. But some birds seem to be doing just fine despite these challenges. Vireos grew by more than 50% since 1970. These songbirds are a rare example of a species that's prospering amid the ecological crisis we're causing, inspiring this imaginative poem from the Poet Laureate of Mississippi. I'm Catherine Pierce, and
9: this is my poem, What I Want to Believe, about the Vireos. The Vireos are plotting. They're everywhere and various, and all with names like Shakespearean villains disguised as Shakespearean clowns. Black-whiskered, plumbious, Sleety-capped shrike, their songs drop from the canopy like candied needles, and everyone smiles. Sweet birds, they've been above us for centuries, watching. See their eyes—small, bright pebbles that betray nothing. They know patience. See them tableaued on the oak branch for minutes before diving for the fat black beetle. They know how green works how it muscles back, always, once the pillars and poisons are gone. They're playing the long game. Weary, 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 trills the scrub greenlet. It'll all be theirs again. Rainforests, mangroves, the great deciduous rustle. The breeze and moss, the loam and sunrise. The vireos will be here at the end and at the next beginning. The red-eyed Vireo's call will sound then like it does now, like it's constantly asking and answering its own questions. What did they do? They did. What did they know? They knew.
1: They seem to have such agency in this poem as you imagine it.
2: Yeah.
9: I wanted to sort of give the birds credit. I was imagining this as they're playing the long game as it says in the poem they see the destruction that's being kind of brought to their habitats and they're they're playing the long game they're going to wait it out they're going to stick around they imagine that eventually humans will kind of <laughs> kind of eradicate themselves and then all the green will come back and all the birds will come back and so it's just, it's a bleak fable but it's only bleak for the humans i think it's really good for the birds
1: <laughs> <laughs> and what about us are we playing the long game do you think I don't get that sense from your poem. I, you know, I mean, I think that this
9: poem is, you know, and I wrote this several years ago when things seemed maybe even bleaker than they do now. So I think it's good that I don't know that I would have necessarily written this poem in the same way if I wrote it now. I do have a little bit more hope now that some things are changing, that some policies are getting better. I think some people are playing the long game. I don't yet think enough of us are playing the long game for thinking about sort of, you know, sustaining this planet, the only planet that we have. But I think that more and more people are beginning to think that way. And I think that more policies are beginning to change. And so I'm hopeful, I'm cautiously hopeful that maybe we'll be moving more toward that as time goes on.
1: That's Catherine Pierce, Poet Laureate of Mississippi. Her latest book is called Danger Days.
0: Well, the vireos that Catherine Pierce writes about aren't the only birds that are thriving. For notes, Michael Stein has more.
10: While nearly a third of North American bird species are in decline, many birds that depend on wetlands are thriving. The main determinant of duck breeding success is the condition of wetlands and upland habitat on the prairies and in the boreal forest. After the extended droughts of the 1980s, conditions on the breeding grounds improved when the rains returned. And waterfowl hunters, through organizations like Ducks Unlimited, have provided hundreds of millions of dollars to conserve and restore wetlands. It's not just ducks that benefit nearly one-quarter of U.S. birds, such as this Virginia Rail, rely on freshwater wetlands. Yes, challenges remain. Breeding habitat in the prairie pothole region is under increasing pressure for conversion to agriculture, but wetland birds respond to our efforts. For example, in spring, In wetland-rich areas protected by conservation programs in the Dakotas, you can find more than 100 breeding pairs of ducks on a single square mile of
2: prairie.
10: (laughs) I'm Michael Stein.
0: For photos, flock on over to the Living Honors website, loe.org.
1: Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Fern Alling, Naomi Ehrenberg, Paloma Beltran, Iris Chen, Josh Kroom, Swayam Gognija, Mark Kaush, Mark Seth Lender, Don Lyman, Neil Mahal, Louis Mallison, Ainsley O'Neill, Sophia Pandelidis, Jake Rigo, L. Wilson, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our
0: show. Allison Lairdstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at loe.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth and find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. And you can write to us at comments at loe.org. Steve Kerwood
1: is our executive producer. I'm Bobby Bascom. And I'm Jenny Doring. Thanks for listening.